As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us. This is The Athletic's Football Tactics Podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell with me, Michael Cox and Tom Warville. And on today's episode, we are reopening our notebooks. Michael and Tom have been watching the opening weekend of the Premier League and they've got plenty to say about it. They've been analysing it, looking at the data, looking for areas of interest just like they did throughout the Euros uh, and I'm delighted to say that they will be walking me through it over the next half hour or so. Tom, Michael, welcome. It was a, an exciting opening weekend, certainly in terms of goals. 34 in total, Michael. A, a, a treat for the returning fans. Yeah, it was really good. I mean, it put into context really how bleak some of the last season was, I think. Um, but it was, I mean, even when the fixtures got released for this back in June, when I think it was just the start of the Euros, usually I think, wow, give us a chance to recharge our batteries. But the fixtures just looked great. There was four or five games which on paper looked really exciting. And uh, yeah, I think it was lived up to the billing. There was barely any disappointing games, to be honest. Tom... One of the Sky Sports commentators towards the end of Leeds-Manchester United, which was a thrilling, depending on who you support, 5-1 win for Manchester United, said that the Premier League's fixture computer, as it's always referred to, might have had a twinkle in its hard drive when (laughs) chucking up this fixture for opening weekend. As our resident expert on this sort of thing, can you confirm or deny the presence of or the possibility of twinkles in the eye of a hard drive? Uh, probably quite confidently deny that that's probably a possibility. Um, yeah, if it's anything, it's gonna be a twinkle in the uh, the processor. But we won't get we won't get to that. <laughs> <will we? laughs> Did you enjoy the opening weekend of the Premier League? What was the Tom the most surprising thing that happened over the weekend for you? And what perhaps was the least surprising thing that happened? I think surprising was was how solid Spurs looked at times, and just how the like good Chaffet Tanganga was and how reassured Oliver Skip looked and I was just really impressed with those guys. Um, Tanganga's been linked with a move to Galatasaray which has always struck me as a kind of bad move for a I think 23 year old who you know you want a, a place where he's going to develop and play football which is going to add stuff to his game or make make him more comfortable to play for Spurs and I'm not sure that move would be it so for him to to shut down Sterling and Jack Grealish 
and somehow avoid a yellow card. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and then, I guess, least surprising, uh, just coming into the Brentford Arsenal game, start of the season, the community stadium was absolutely rocking. Uh, Arsenal, you know, full of new signings, a lot of youth there. It doesn't really look like an Arsenal side of, of yesteryear, of a lot of experience and quality players. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I bet on Brentford because <laughs> I really just thought that they would have a chance and there's, there's value in, in them winning. And they looked pretty comfortable in the end, didn't they? I don't think Arsenal threatened too much. And yeah, that was definitely least surprising, but uh, a bit of a worry as well for Arsenal for such a bad start. We're definitely touching on that game later. We've got eight of the 10 Premier League games represented on this podcast on in rather your notebooks. Michael, what was a pleasant surprise for you this weekend? And what did you watch and think you didn't even need to play this game because we all knew what was going to happen? Um, I don't know whether a pleasant surprise, but I thought one of the surprising things was two managers in Patrick Vieira and uh, Bruno Lage at uh, Wolves basically used the same system as their predecessors used. I mean, Vieira played very obvious 4-4-2 away at Chelsea. I think they really struggled to get up the pitch. And Wolves used a 3-4-3 that obviously was, was very much linked with the way Nuno played. And one, I expected both managers just to change the system because that's what I'd kind of read about in pre-season previews. But also I just thought they'd want to make a break with the past. Uh, both sides lost, whether that was because of the system or the formation, I don't know. I think Wolves was probably slightly unlucky against Leicester, to be honest. But yeah, when a new manager comes in, I always think they kind of want to draw a line in the sand and just do something differently almost for the sake of it. But neither of those did. Interesting. Uh, let's open the notebooks and we'll start with Spurs 1, Manchester City 0. Michael, you've written about this on the Athletic site. Brilliant tactical breakdown. And you focused on Nuno, his first Premier League game in charge of Spurs. The fact that he got his tactics spot on to win this game against Pep's Manchester City. But also how it was perhaps although Spurs fans might not like to hear it, inspired by Thomas Tuchel, the Chelsea manager. Yeah, I thought so. Um, I mean, in, in the Champions League final, Tuchel used 3-4-3, as pretty much he always did for, for Chelsea towards the end of last season. But the front three stayed very narrow and very tight. There was no intention for the wide players to drop back either side of, of Kante and Jorginho. They really focused on basically denying City any progress through the centre of the pitch, and that worked very well. And Spurs' approach really was even more extreme. I mean, in in Lucas, Bergwijn and Son, you've got three players there who, all, all of them are wingers, really. I mean, Son, you could argue, but it's generally played out wide. And yet it was the most narrow front three you'll ever see. They were, when the ball was in a central position, they were all within the width of the centre circle, so no more than 20 yards between them. And I thought it was really interesting in combination with the fact that, as we know, as we've spoken about many times on this podcast... City's fullbacks play very narrow as well. So you have this peculiar situation where usually the fullbacks would be stretching the play, the wingbacks would be going back with them, but actually everything was condensed into a central area. And when you looked at the Spurs' overall system, they ended up with a very, very wide back four, narrowish midfield, and then a very narrow front three, which just looks strange. It's just a kind of unusual situation. And of course, it had lots of knock on effects. I mean, it. It gives the fullbacks absolutely no protection against the wingers and asked a lot of them. But I thought Tanganga did a pretty good job against Sterling in particular. Um, and there were just a few interesting things, I thought, just from that unusual battle. I mean, even the fact that, you know, we know one of the main reasons City play narrow in defence is to guard against counter-attacks through the centre of the pitch. That was the original idea. But, I mean, Spurs had five or six really good counter-attacking opportunities, including the the goal. So, yeah, for me, that was probably the most interesting game of the weekend and, and obviously a very good start for Nuno. And were you surprised that Pep 
didn't make proactive changes earlier in the game in order to exploit those spaces or, or rather avoid the congestion that they were finding in the centre of the park? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, maybe he would argue that because um, because Spurs were countering, there was extra need for those players in central positions. But to be honest, I was a bit surprised with his selection in general. I mean, I would think he probably thought, well, Lucas is quick, so we're going to want Mendy up against him. But the more Mendy plays, the less I expect him to play because he just never seems comfortable. And, you know, in these kind of narrow positions, I think he he really looks like he's struggling in terms of how to receive the ball and the real basics. And I thought Zinchenko would come on much sooner because he's he's far more suited to those kind of situations, even if he doesn't have the recovery pace. I must say, I thought on the other side, Cancelo was really good. I mean, he's he he can do either role. He can play those De Bruyne-esque kind of passes into the channel or, as he did in the second half, he can overlap and put balls into the box. I mean, it's worth remembering, he didn't start in the Champions League final. You know, he was. We were raving about what a great season he'd had and how he'd evolved the role of the fullback, and and he got left out because Zinchenko and Walker started in in the fullback positions. So maybe he's got something to prove uh, this season. But yeah, I thought he was City's best player. I mean, a, a City side without De Bruyne, of course, and not quite at full strength in in some other areas. But um, after the first ten minutes, I thought Spurs were excellent. Yeah, I'll always remember a Gary Neville exhortation in the second half when talking about Mendy. It was the final straw for, for someone who was obviously uh, an excellent defensive fullback uh, and, and pretty good going forward as well. But specifically when it came to uh, winning duels and he just went, Mendy can't defend. He cannot defend. He is so loose. And you could absolutely see what he meant. Tom, one of the players that Mendy struggled to, to get a grip on was Lucas Mora. I'd like to see more of this Lucas Mora. Is this a, a Lucas Mora season and his teammate Deli Ali as well? Something of a comeback season for him? Am I am I going too early here? Yeah, I I kind of obviously clock clock the same. Definitely with Lucas. I mean he attempted eleven take ons and completed six, which is the most for him in a Spurs shirt and that was obviously the game plan, I think. You know, use him as that outlet. Um, you didn't have Kane dropping deep and able to kind of free the runners of this passing. Hoybier did it a little bit, but I thought Mora was excellent as a, a means of kind of defending in transition moments by attacking, really. Um, and then, yeah, Deli Ali won where uh, Nuno said in the press conference after he's a runner and we're going to use him as a runner. We're going to have him as a, you know, box-to-box midfielder, which I think, you know, that's something that is something that Deli Ali has um, and you know he attempted more tackles for for Spurs against City than he's ever done uh, in a Spurs game but it's interesting that you know he's so good on his day at what he does is this kind of like second striker attacking midfielder role and you're using him as a runner because that's something he can do and it's obviously the way that Nuno wants to play but you know that's when you start to think okay is there value in other teams looking at Ali because you know he probably has a lot more to offer than just being a, a box-to-box runner. But um, yeah, I thought it was... Uh, those two bits were interesting tactically, especially like you said earlier, that Michael said, you know, these are three wingers, really. Um, and you're using them, you know, one as a, a forward in Son, who was even reluctant at times to take... There's a, a moment in the first half, really reluctant to take Nathan Ake on the box, even though he had all the time and space and did turn the second half and scored. So um, yeah, I think it'll be uh, interesting to see if, if this is the kind of front three he sticks with. I think it's hard to read into it too much because you have to have a game plan against City. You can't play maybe your kind of normal brand of football. So, um, yeah, those two definitely stand out for me. Great start for Nuno and Spurs. I think 
too early in the season to be uh, too concerned about Manchester City. I'm very wary that last season they only won three of their first eight games. In that period, we had a podcast with Sammy Lee and we dissected everything that was going wrong and scratched our chins as to how easily those problems could be fixed. And of course, they cantered to the title. So I'm sure we will keep a, a close eye on Pep City over the next few weeks and months. Let's move on to Manchester United 5, Leeds United 1. Uh, Tom, it was 6-2 in the same fixture last season. So straight away we're seeing both teams tightening up this season to the tune of one goal each. Um, what is it about these two teams that can chuck up this sort of game, very rare in the Premier League these days, and how much should we read into this as opening day fair? Yeah, I guess I'd preface this by saying, you know, it obviously was a very good Manchester United performance, but I think the way that Leeds play with this 4-1-4-1 and they're trying to man-mark all over just suits Manu's attacks so well. Like, they are very loose um, they obviously like to kind of, you know, hit, hit teams from deep attack quickly. Um, the presence of Bruno as a as a number ten and one of the kind of few proper team require his creativity to create chances kind of player. Um, it just works so well. And Bruno just had Robin Cox's number practically the whole game. Was always able to get in behind him. Cox was always the wrong side, and you could see that they really miss Calvin Phillips. And I think Calvin Phillips missed the last game as well with um, Stroik playing at defensive midfield. So it'd be really nice if next season we have Calvin Phillips against Phillip, uh, against Bruno Fernandes. We can actually see what, you know, what difference he does make. And I imagine it's probably to the tune of two or three goals fewer. Because um, I really think that, that Cock was at fault for, for quite a few of them. But... Yeah, I think I think we shouldn't get too low on Leeds. We shouldn't get too high on United. I mean, on the XG score, I think it was 1.5 to United and 0.6 to Leeds. So some very clinical finishing from, from United. And yeah, it just really suited their game plan to play against such a free and open Leeds, I think. Michael, again, too early to leap to conclusions with Leeds United, but... One of the key themes of our preview was, and Bielsa spoke about it himself, because of their very specific style of play, which helped them hugely in their first season, um, surprising a lot of teams who, who hadn't come across a, a team playing in that way in the Premier League. He said, well, yes, teams will know much more about us, but we will know much more about the opposition. I mean, when other teams in the Premier League watched this game, watched the 6-2 last season, how prescriptive will Manchester United's approach B, clearly not every club has players of the quality that Manchester United have, but how prescriptive is that game plan against Leeds? How easy might that be for other teams to implement and maybe hurt them a little more than last season? Like you say, not many teams have the quality of Manchester United. And I think when you look at Leeds' season last time out, they had the biggest points per game difference between games against the top half and games against the bottom half. They didn't really get results against the big sides. They did beat Manchester City towards the end of the campaign think that was when City were, were focused on other competitions. But at the moment, it does seem that Leeds's formation, or their system, I should say, works up to a point. Um, it, it was really torn apart here. I mean, obviously, Fernandez, the, the main man, Pogba with four assists. But I thought Greenwood was excellent up front. He he, he hasn't played that much as a centre-forward for Manchester United. Often often comes in from wide. But I thought he showed some real interesting elements to his game, the way he dropped deep to drag defenders up was really key to Fernandez getting in behind and I thought the goal as well it's one of those where I think because he's so two-footed defenders don't quite know what to expect you know I think a lot of strikers in that situation would would look to almost do the Thierry Henry finish when they cut inside and bend it into the far post but he can go both ways and sometimes you just see goals where that does seem to be crucial I think the Son goal in a very different way was was the same I think the defender was Ake in that situation 
got done by the movement inside and people will say, well, don't let him inside. But when you've got a player like Son who can happily go either way, it's very difficult to kind of op- overcompensate in one direction because he'll leave the, the door open the other way. So there's not too many players in the Premier League that are, I think are really clinical with both feet. I'd say those two, probably Sadio Mane would be another one. A few can use their weaker foot, but those are the three I'd say would be off the top of my head probably closest to being two-footed. And uh, I think in some situations, it just gives you more space. Yeah, spot on. Um, Let's talk Brentford to Arsenal nil. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. This is what we've got planned for you across the Athletic Podcast Network this season. The Ornstein and Chapman podcast has been rebranded as the Athletic Football Podcast. We'll release four episodes across the week as our journalists bring you the very best insight into the biggest stories in football and the business of sport. Michael Cox will continue to bring you the smartest analysis of all the big games in the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Adam Hurry will now host two episodes of the Football Clichés podcast every single week with his usual take on the game. There's a brand new Athletic FPL podcast with our fantasy football expert, the FPL General give you all the advice you need to stay ahead of your mates and top of the FPL rankings. And the Athletic Podcast Network is also home now to host of club-specific shows, some of which are going to be releasing multiple episodes every week. And we're now your destination, don't forget, for the Totally Football Show with James Richardson and the Totally Football League Show. And that is it. We can't fit any more in. All you've got to do is search for The Athletic in your podcast provider of choice or go to our podcast section on The Athletic app. Not surprisingly, with all of the stuff that I've just mentioned, The Athletic is now the world's biggest football podcast network. Welcome to the Premier League, Brentford FC. Michael, how did they approach this one? How did they create such a a, a magnificent and memorable uh, opening night win against Arsenal. I mean, I thought they did everything better. I think that was a surprising thing, the most impressive thing. Usually in a situation like this, you'd say, OK, there's a, a newly promoted team. They're going to have some strengths and weaknesses. It's about them trying to you know, tailor the game to their strengths. But I mean, at, at every stage, they were better. In the opening stages, they were counterattacking really well. It looked like they just went for and Buemo, uh, his speed on the outside of, of Mari and Tony to use his physicality against uh, Ben White, who I thought had a difficult first game. At times they pressed very well. They almost caught Xhaka in possession on the edge of their box, on the edge of his box, although certainly not the first team to have done that over the last couple of years. Um, they defended deep when they had to. They had a couple, I think leading up to the second goal, 
They had a couple of spells of, of pressure and possession play. And of course, set pieces. I mean, the long throw brought the goal. Um, the same player, Norgard, almost scored from a corner. It, it was just, I mean, every aspect of the game, you could break it down and say that Brentford were the better side. It was just a really, really deserved victory. Tom, Arsenal undercooked, uninspiring, perhaps slightly unprepared for this one as well. How bad was it? Yeah, I think it was it was pretty poor. I mean, I focused um, a lot kind of watching the wingers and I just think Pepe, uh, I don't want to talk about price tags and players because we know there's, there's multiple reasons for why a player can have a pri- high price tag, but he just seemed to slow the game down so much and he didn't really work well with Callum Chambers. But I also think that Brentford were almost kind of tripling up on him at times. So he came inside a lot. He went backwards a lot. Um, he turned the ball over a ton as well. Uh, and yeah, I think that, that that's that's going to be a struggle. I think it always is for Arsenal against sides who who drop deep. Uh, and then Gabriel Martinelli just kind of looked a bit tired to me. Um, having one goal at the Olympics, coming back, Reese Nelson isn't as good. Arguably, isn't even a left-sided player. But you could maybe play him. You could maybe have played Saka, who's got a little bit more rest than than him. Um, I thought. Kieran Tierney was was useful, but again, it's just very predictable by Arsenal. Just go down the left, just kind of... They do very well to create a lot of open space for him to cross into, but there's no real target, man. There's no one on the end of those crosses. The the box is too packed um, for one of their kind of smaller, less aerially dominant strikers to get on the end of it. They don't really have anyone making those runs from the edge of the box to attack it as well. I just think... Seven seven chances created for him is, is obviously a lot, but I think a lot of them were fairly low quality. Some were even just kind of passing to Balogun to, to shoot from the corner of the box. So, yeah, is it just going to be more of the same uh, in terms of the way they look to attack, the frustrations in that? And are we going to be talking about Arsenal's crossing again for the first two or three months of the season? Plenty for Arteta to think about. And of course, without... The distraction, although I hate calling European football a distraction because it should be what you aim towards, but without the travel and the the Thursday night games in the Europa League, he has plenty of time on the training ground to uh, get those ideas across and we hope to see improvement over the next few weeks. Uh, Everton beat Saints 3-1 from behind in this one. Rafa Benitez's first game, his first win as Everton manager. Uh, What signs, Tom, did we see from how he'll approach this? It was quite an exciting game and, and a good win for Everton to get the season started. Paddy Boylan wrote about kind of what the game plan was going to be in pre-season and hit the nail on the head in his kind of preview piece that it's going to be a lot of a lot of focus on crossing and not a lot of focus on, on possession really. Um, and look at the numbers. I think they had one sequence of, of 10 or more passes strung together, which is the joint lowest in the Premier League at the opening weekend with Burnley. So that's the kind of vibe they're going for in possession. Um, 17 crosses in open play and they were just very keen to use rotations at wide, kind of have some uh, some kind of predetermined like ways to get across them to a good position, either from a kind of an outswinger who's cut inside. I think Andros Townsend did that a few times or kind of going to the byline and getting it in early, but they were just attacking the box as often as they could. Um, and, you know, it's not that sexy. It doesn't feel like it's a progressive means of playing football, um, especially after kind of Carlo Ancelotti, but it was effective against Southampton. And I think given the qualities of Dominic Calvert-Lewin, this is arguably the best way to play for him, um, as as horrible as that might sound. And, you know, everyone wants to see more pleasing football, but actually if I'm seeing them attack the box and you've got Calvert-Lewin doing his spaceman jump five, six, seven times a game, um, that's going to 
bring a lot of results, he's going to get easily, you know, 15 plus goals a season. Uh, I'm pretty sure. You wrote a huge piece about crossing last season. You've studied this in, in more detail than most. When we talk about Everton's crossing being a, a net positive for the players that they have and a, a good way to create and score goals, create chances and score goals rather, but we talk about Arsenal's crossing being a, a really a negative solution to, to that question. What is it about, you know, how would you compare those two and give an idea of, of what it takes for you to look at a team that crosses a lot and think yes, and what it takes for you to look at a team that crosses a lot and thinks no thank you? I think with Arsenal, really, if you put Dominic Calvert-Lewin in Arsenal's team and have them attacking the, the crosses, uh, Kieran Tierney gets more assists from the chances that he's creating. Um, I think that they, they do well to get him in, into those positions. I think the delivery sometimes is too far back towards the edge of the box, like I was saying earlier. But yeah, I just think that the difference for Arsenal is, is that. And I think with Everton, I think one of the things mainly to look out for, and it's something I detailed in the crossing piece, is that there are certain areas very much deep by the touchline where crosses result in goals less than 1% of the time. And Andros Townsend was doing a lot of those, a lot of kind of in-swingers with, with his left foot from the right, which are probably A, easier to defend um, and B, I mean B really from that it's just because you're not going to get the ball into the striker's feet or onto his head so um, I think their efficiency from crossing will be low really low whereas Arsenal needs to be a bit higher um, and there will be games where they put in a lot of crosses they don't get the chances and we go oh you know crossing is a bad strategy but they're playing percentage football really aren't they and um, yeah but I think well that's one I'll, I'll do in a few weeks is look at the crossing locations of Everton, of Arsenal, of, of other teams and understand kind of how they're doing versus expectation um, and if, if something needs tweaking. Um, I think Andros Townsend has always been a pretty loose player in possession and I think, again, we'll see his his turnover stats being really high and his creative stats being pretty low. So it could work very well against some teams, but there might be some teams who have no issue with the aerial approach and that could cause some frustration uh, I think, in the future for, for Everton fans. We'll see how it goes. Keep an eye on it uh, over the next few months. Uh, just want to raise the fact that Adam Armstrong scored a wonderful debut goal, um, a turnover, Michael Keane sort of dallying on the ball and, and Armstrong was slipped in. And for someone who's watched so much of Armstrong in the EFL, specifically in the championship over the last two years, it was a real source of delight to see him not just finish well not just round the keeper or maybe slot it into the bottom corner but almost to show off what I consider to be his elite skill um, by just posting it nonchalantly right into the top corner it looked brilliant uh, and it was a great introduction to someone who played a couple of games for Newcastle at Premier League level as a very very young player has since played hundreds of games in the EFL much more than almost anyone else his age apart from Yuri Tielemans and has worked his way back up and gets that first Premier League goal and just a, a note on finishing ability Tom it's something that we've spoken about a lot I just wanted to to flag up a, a metric that we've mentioned before I remember us talking to Mark Carey about expected goals on target or XGOT Tom you and I have been chatting about this a little over the last few days because there's a website called FOTMOB um, which has added some really interesting and free available data uh, shot data for anyone to look at for Premier League games top five leagues and the championship as well uh, and as well as including expected goals which we love to look at They've got XGOT, expected goals on target numbers uh, too, which is fascinating. And it was pleasing for me to look back at some Opta analysis, um, some sort of season review stuff that they've done um, for, again, for the top five leagues and for the EFL as well. And looking at last season in the championship of the 
the main sort of uh, goal threats, of which Armstrong was certainly one of them. He didn't win the golden boot, but he scored the most non-penalty goals. And as we know, that is the real quiz. Um, he had the second highest XG per 90 in the championship. Only Andre Gray outdid him on that front, but Gray only played a third of the minutes, was really just a bench option for a good Watford side and massively underperformed on that front. But if you compare expected goals on target, which kind of, in a rudimentary sense, measures the quality of the finish, I suppose, because it rewards players who put the ball into the corner, find the corner, shoot uh, into into tough areas for the goalkeeper to save. Adam Armstrong in the championship is basically the only guy of the, the, the biggest goal threats whose expected goals on target overshoots his expected goals. And I think, Tom, I'm not going way off piece here to suggest that over the course of the season, we can say Armstrong, in terms of finishing skill and ability at championship level, um, very much stood out over his peers, even those who scored a lot of goals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that all those numbers kind of point to him making more of the chances that he had. Um, he wasn't just getting it on target. I mean, if you can get sh- your shots on target consistently, that's good. But getting them, you know, right in the corners from certain angles um, and, and kind of testing the keeper is, is even better. Um, and that's what we saw against uh, against Everton. I almost thought he kind of over-finished from that situation, if <laughs> yeah. that makes sense. It's like you don't have to make it that hard for yourself. You could have slotted it kind of lower um, lower in the goal. But yeah, I think that is that is a, a good thing for him. Um, I do wonder if there's a quirk of him consistently getting chances like that. I, I from memory, can think of a few kind of chips he's done. Um and kind of really can rifle into that top corner. And yeah, is that a repeatable skill? We'll, we'll find out. Um, Samson weren't great. And there's a question on, on can he get that level of XG in the first place? I don't think he will. But um, yeah, it's, it's good signs. I think he's probably going to be a good finisher and probably what they need now that Danny Ings has gone for sure. Genuinely shaking, having done my best Warville impression there. I went full Warville and it, and it felt good. <laughs> I think I'll probably stick to asking the questions from now on though. Michael, let's touch on Chelsea 3, Crystal Palace nil. A pretty comfortable opening day win at a sunny Stamford Bridge. I feel like we've seen that exact match of the day highlights package quite a lot uh, since, what, 2003 with Chelsea. Sort of a sunny bridge, a comfortable home win, a nice moment with a young player who's impressed in pre-season, in this case, Trevor Chalobah. Was it made easy for Chelsea or do you think this was a genuinely, you know, high performance level from Tuchel's men hitting the ground running? I thought Chelsea were brilliant, actually. I... I changed my prediction for the Premier League on the day before the season started. I was thinking Manchester City and then I looked at Chelsea's squad and I thought there's just no weaknesses there. Brilliant, absolutely stacked in every position. Fantastic manager as well. And this was just so dominant. I can't believe how dominant this was. They didn't let Palace out of their own half really in the first half. Um, Some of the stats in terms of pressing as well. I mean, Palace just couldn't win the ball ball back at all. I just I was amazed how dominant it was the first half and just every aspect of Chelsea's game was brilliant. The movement of Mount as usual was fantastic. Um and they've got more to come, of course, with Lukaku coming into the team. But you know, it was funny because we're used to having every game on television. This this one wasn't it. It was a Saturday three PM, so probably not many people saw it, but I watched it on the uh, football first offering on Sky that evening. And honestly, I, I can't remember the last time I saw such a dominant performance against a, a decent Crystal Palace side. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, they weren't too different from, from last season, but good players and uh you know, usually good organisation, but they just couldn't get out. It was so, so dominant. Um 
So yeah, well, I'm in on the basis of the first weekend of action. I'm, I'm pleased I changed my prediction at the last minute. What I think is interesting is that Chelsea are considered to have a, a difficult start to the season. Um, a home game against Palace, you know, notwithstanding, they go to Arsenal on Sunday. They then go to Liverpool the following weekend uh, before playing Villa at home, Spurs away and Manchester City at home. And I think there's an interesting question here about whether that is a really tough start for Chelsea or if they consider themselves to be in great shape to start the season, where, for example, an Arsenal, uh, a Tottenham finding their feet under Nuno, despite that good first result, uh, dare I say a Manchester City, who, who might be slowed to out the traps like they were last season. I wonder where there's almost an extent to where this could be a positive for Chelsea, if they're in really good nick, to have these big games early on, when they're ready for it, and maybe the opposition slightly less so. Do you think that makes sense, or do you still think you'd rather spread them out? No, it's quite an interesting point. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And um, yeah, it's obvious Chelsea just hit the ground running. I mean, really, since Tuchel came in, they've been almost, they've looked almost unbeatable at times. The control they have in terms of not conceding goals and not conceding chances is extraordinary. And the one thing they probably lacked under Tuchel, um, you know, in the second half of last year, of course, was they weren't that effective at breaking down smaller sides you know it was a lot of one nils and one nils can easily turn into nil nils but this was just so comprehensive and um yeah with Lukaku coming in they've got I think they've got more attacking options than any other side and uh the way that they counter press in particular I think is really really impressive I don't think they've got quite enough credit for that we we you know associate counter pressing really with Klopp of course there's a a familiar backstory between Klopp's career and Tuchel's career, but I think you know Chelsea do it better than Liverpool. Certainly on the evidence of of this opening weekend, I thought Liverpool were a little bit sloppy in that regard. And of course, because Chelsea have got such depth in terms of their attacking options, they can make substitutes, not lose any quality, and they've still got the added energy to press really quickly. We talk about you know the rotation in the attacking positions in terms of going forward, but they're the first line of defence and. Um, yeah, I just thought it was an incredibly dominant performance. Yeah, I guess I'll just quickly touch upon that that point about the squad depth because Tuchel's really made, or trying to make the most of a player like Marcus Alonso, who was largely the forgotten man under Frank Lampard, I think, and has obvious, obvious qualities uh, as an uh, attacking wing-back and obviously defensively he's not that great, but also, um, yeah, you don't really need that if the rest of the team can, can cover him. So kind of good to see him back in the team. And I also wanted to, to give a bit of credit to Jorginho and his kind of nice shiny white peroxide hair, which I think probably probably makes him slightly more favourite for kind of player of the year, adds more value to his price tag. I just think that's a, it's, it's a good look. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan. Good, good. That's what we're here for, that sort of analysis. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham, 
catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Uh, welcome back, Watford, by the way. Flew out the traps, didn't they, against Villa. They won 3-2, having been 3-0 up um, what, after two-thirds of the game and, and Villa getting a couple of goals later on. Cisco Munoz has his first win as a Premier League manager. Tom, what's the key note from this one? Yeah, I think Watford is really, really good on the counter. Um, and you, you're going to have that with Ismail Assar. Um but I think Ken Seymour was was good on his day as well. And Villa just really struggled to defend the transition. Um, I think Marvellous Nakamba gave possession away a couple of times in very sloppy situations. And if you do that when you're kind of setting up against Watford's box, it's going to cause you problems because all your players are are so high up and they're going to they're going to run at you with pace. Um, and I think that you know Nakamba didn't have the pace to run back doesn't really have the physical stature to bounce someone off the ball as well and and yeah having him and McGinn in there um, wasn't the best in defending those situations and I feel a bit at the moment for Tyra Mings as well because he's obviously in a bit of a rut um, there was a situation on the first goal where I think the space between him and Edry Konza was way too big such that when Konza blocked the first shot Mings should have been in a position to at least block the second or, or, or clean up. And that's something last season we saw them two kind of coming together a lot very close to block shots and that was quite off. His positioning wasn't quite there. Um, and then obviously he got unfortunate as well on, on Sars goal, deflecting into his own net. So yeah, definitely feel for him a bit at the moment. But I don't think Villa were, were that bad. I don't think Watford were as good. Again, this is one game in the season. It's some very good finishing from Watford. Um, and yeah, I think Emi Buendia looked... Okay, I think the commentator on the game said it's not kind of a vintage Bundee performance, but he was still kind of sliding neat passes into the box and and kind of creating space for his teammates. So, uh, yeah, Villa have got a lot of depth. Um, I was surprised actually to see Ashley Young start left wing with Bertrand Troy on the bench. I just thought that was a a weird option. But, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, Villa can can defend a bit better in transition in future. Otherwise, that is definitely the way that you can you can let's go and attack them. Big question, even before this weekend and after the departure of Grealish and the addition of, of those players to replace his output, uh, quote-unquote, was how you're going to format them, what the formation will be and, and where those players will play within that. And I think the jury's still out uh, when it comes to Villa. Their fans sort of scratching their heads after this one as to, as to how they could have been blitzed so easily in the first half, particularly. I think the most interesting thing for me, not to bring everything back to uh, to the EFL, is like Saar came down with Watford with this incredible reputation you know, most particularly that game against Liverpool two seasons ago stuck in the mind as to how devastating he could be on the counter-attack. But because Watford were the big dogs of the championship, clubs didn't set up allowing them to to play on the counter-attack. That wasn't really a feature of their game because in general, they had the talent advantage and it, the onus was on them to break teams down. Clearly, they did that well enough to be promoted and Saar was excellent. But he didn't actually get to show his elite quality when he was in the in the league below and it's almost like he is more suited to not dominate games because it, it, I guess that's probably the wrong word to use for a counter-attacking player but to show exactly what he can do at the very top level it's almost like he needs to be at the top level possibly playing for a team such as Watford who now will have a completely different scenario for, for the majority of their games and, and that could bring the best out of Saar so that's really exciting because he is enthralling to watch on the break I must say at Newcastle 2 West Ham 4 was a surprising scoreline just in terms of the amount of goals I have to admit um, Michael you watched this one what did you make of the game what was your your main note from this one what did you like 
Yeah, it was just a really good game end to end. Like you say, a little bit surprising there were so many goals. Both sides really set up to play on the counter and get crosses in, really. Those those two uh, features really brought most of the goals. It just felt like because the game state was constantly changing, there was always someone needing to, to chase the game. But the main thing I took from it really was, I always remember Johan Cruyff saying that his favourite goal was when one fullback crosses the ball and the the other one at the far post puts it in. I don't know whether that applies to wing backs as well. It's slightly cheating. And it does seem slightly odd to be saying that Johan Cruyff's idea of uh, football utopia involves Matt Ritchie and Jacob Murphy. But uh, I did think there was more attacking intent than usual from, from Newcastle. That goal summed it up. And actually as well, Emil Kraft, who, who plays right-sided centre-back, went on a couple of... Uh, should we say Sheffield United-esque overlapping runs from wide centre-back, which I thought was something you probably wouldn't have seen too much last year. So I don't know whether that was a deliberate tactic, but I must say I really enjoy watching Newcastle United. It doesn't seem to be a feeling that is shared with many of their supporters, but certainly in highlights form, they're always quite fun with Wilson and Sam Maximan and, uh, and, and Almiron. And yeah, watching them for 90 minutes here, I had the same feeling. They've got a lot of really talented attackers. And uh, this was just, I thought, a good... uh, It's a bit of a cliche to say a good advert for the Premier League, but I think when you're talking about two sides who are generally deep in counter-attacking and they produce such a good game, it is true. You can go to the fifth, sixth best game of the weekend um, and it's still great entertainment. So, yeah, I I enjoyed this and particularly that uh, Richie to Murphy goal. I've been frantically Googling whether... Jordi Cruyff, son of Johan, and Steve Bruce overlapped at Manchester United, but sadly not. (laughs) Bruce left uh, two years before Jordi arrived, so um, no chance that they shared. Or rather, Bruce left in the summer that Jordi arrived. So there's a tiny chance that they shared a drink uh, at some point and spoke about um, Johan's favourite styles of play for, for Steve to then use. Uh, l- l- it was 96 wasn't it 96 the Uranus 6 I remember I remember Cruyff looking really good in the Euros I mean quite excited that he when he came it was him and Popolski at the same time neither he was the classic kind of signer player on the back of a good Euros <laughs> and no one neither of them quite lived up to uh, what they promised in that tournament Tom uh, in this game uh, if Michael enjoyed the wing backs and their combination play for uh, Newcastle United you were looking at, at a couple of wide men for West Ham yeah, I, th- I thought Jared Bowen and Sai Ben Rama um, were just really good. Uh, I've, I really enjoyed watching West Ham last season. I thought they, they're they kind of a a bit of a budget Man U on the break at times. Um, and they've obviously um, done really well without Jesse Lingard, who obviously played well for them. But I think Bowen was just excellent at times, kind of dragging Newcastle's defence out wide. Um, some kind of nice passing. He had one very memorable run where he took on a couple of, of players and he almost went down like he was celebrating. I think the the replay after shows it wasn't. He was just kind of upset that he'd missed, but it was a really, really good one. Really good run. Probably would have been the the goal of the weekend. But yeah, I think that he was he was really good. Ben Rama as well. Obviously, was really really good at Brentford and hadn't quite hit the heights in his first season. But you know the the kind of classic first season under your belt. He's probably done the the standard like bulk up in the gym over the summer, like we've seen Van der Beek and Nicolas Pepe do, and then from there well, they'll they'll go and hit the ground running this year. So those two are really exciting. Um, but I also really liked that both Mikel Antonio and Callum Wilson were wearing number nine now, um, and they are I think first and second in terms of xG uh, created from the weekend. So two number nines facing off each other, both getting really high quality chances. That's just kind of vintage football, really. Vintage football. Last note from the notebook. Tom and it's it's Burnley one expected Brighton two 
some unexpected tactical and personnel selection from the funky Graham Potter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I went back and watched this game last night because I was intrigued by by going through the starting lineup and seeing Pascal Gross starting at left back. So, um, looking at formations and formation changes in data at the moment, it's a bit. Uh, it's not great. It's not that accurate. It's sometimes late. It's sometimes only kind of changes when there's substitutions. So, I thought for one game, why not go back and watch the video? Um, so, I mean, Brighton started uh, in a four-one-four-one. Gross was at left back. Adam Webster at right back. Um, Stephen Alzate was was the sitting midfielder with Ibasuma and, uh, and Enoch Mwepu, the computer, ahead of him as kind of these number eights. Um, and it's really interesting that the Mope would drop so deep at times, you know, deeper than the two centre mids to, to get on the ball, drag a defender out and kind of help the build up from there. Um, and the centre backs, maybe uh, I hadn't really seen it a lot from Brighton last year. Maybe they did do it a lot, but the centre backs were probably both the left centre back and the right centre back were kind of at the corners of the box and really kind of stretching Burnley's press and meaning that Chris Wood had to cover a lot more ground um, and I think Robert Sanchez had the more, more, most passes of any goalkeeper at the weekend which I think is quite consistent based on last season but he at times would always step up and and, and you know build from the edge of his area so, so that was interesting and the second half you saw Gross go to kind of a, a right wing back Adam Webster to right centre back and they went to a back three of, of Dunk at left centre back and Shane Duffy who back from his loan at Celtic and actually looked quite tasting on the ball at times a lot of kind of threaded passes between the lines um, which were definitely useful in, in getting the midfielders on the ball um, and what you'd actually see is Webster would go out wide to kind of a right back Sanchez would play where the right centre back would be uh, Duffy the left centre back and Dunk as a left back so you kind of had a back four but it was using the keeper as that that fourth that fourth defender so um, yeah just very very Graham Potter to kind of change things up um, quite a lot in this game. His subs were extremely effective. Jakob Moda coming on and is acting as kind of a second wing back, more of a kind of inside right midfielder. And he created the goal for, for Mope. Um, and then Alexis McAllister, I think, will have a really, really good season. And hopefully he gets more of Adam Lalanda's minutes and he came on and scored the winner. So, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of nice things about Brighton as per. And again, I think we spoke about them last week, but if they play the way they did last season, their numbers were very, very good. And I, I kind of trust in them to come good this season. Well, given what you've said there, I think I will now be firing up the machine to watch this game back. Any team using the the goalkeeper in the defensive line in build-up, worth a watch, I think, for, for those of us who are interested in that sort of thing. Uh, guys, thank you so much. Always love it when you open the notebook and, and share your thoughts with us. Um, yeah. What a fascinating opening weekend of Premier League action uh, and really looking forward to the season ahead. I think everyone's just feeling very encouraged and I, I think fans being back in the grounds makes a huge difference as well. So uh, we will continue to cover the Premier League and wider, more European football as well, I'm sure, over the course of the season. So stick with us on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We've got loads of good ideas, loads of things to come over the course of the season. Um, we'll have some bonus episodes as well. So do make sure you're subscribed and subscribe to The Athletic as well so that you can read everything Tom and Michael are putting out throughout the week, as well as the stable of, of wonderful football writers that The Athletic have as well. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is where you can go to sign up uh, with 33% off an annual subscription now. Uh, otherwise, thanks so much for listening. You can tweet us to let us know any thoughts and any ideas for future episodes. We are all ears. We'll talk again next week. Cheers. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favourite teams or sporting events? 
we've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.